<laughs> I don't think people get this. Uh, this is the sound of us being teleported from the watch along that we have as bonus content into this space called the Wheel of Time show about the Wheel of Time show. Sometimes we forget to explain stuff because mm-hmm. there's so much fucking exposition in this TV show. Yeah. We feel like we want to give you all a break from it. Yeah. I also am a little too confident in my skills sometimes to be like, oh, this will be obvious. And although we haven't like, I haven't seen anybody go, what the fuck are they doing? Um, but uh, I just felt like I was like, oh, they, they, they might not know this. I'll just go ahead and tee this one up for them. Anyway, everybody. Hello. How are you? I am Garrett Schultz here today with Adam Diaz and and Faye. Hello, Faye. Hello, Adam. Hello. And Peggy. And, <laughs> and Peggy. <laughs> work, work. This is the Wheel of Time show about the Wheel of Time show. This is a podcast that is reacting to the Amazon Prime television show, The Wheel of Time. And we just finished watching season one, episode four. And holy shit, I loved it. It was fucking great. That's the end of the episode. Bye, everybody. Slam to music. <laughs> Uh, Anyway, um, so we're going to get into this. Again, we just watched the episode. We just came from the watch long. And we are going to launch into our thoughts and dreams and our expectations. Hopes and prayers. And and our general emotions. All right, guys. So, um, start of episode five. Four. Four. Wow. Mm-hmm. I have been up for a very long time, guys. Faye, what were All you right. doing? Hold on, Faye. Tell us. Tell everybody what you were up doing. So, I was up working at twenty four yesterday. Um, I was at the hospital. And what's your job? I deliver babies. They. <laughs> yeah, you're a doctor. Doctor. I'm actually a stork. I just bring babies <laughs> to everybody. <laughs> It's weird because the first time I met her, I called her Heron and she got super offended. And Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm so sorry. I don't know my birds well enough to Mm -hmm. separate a stork from a heron. (laughs) Oh, and Adam, I would like to just talk about what's going on in your world. Are you recording from Las Vegas as usual today? Yep. Nothing to see here. Okay. One look away. Again, slam um, the credits. Robin Grace and I are at uh, San Diego Comic-Con International, which is uh, being run on Thanksgiving weekend. So I am recording from a hotel room, which isn't that bad. But if it sounds a little bit off, that means Garrett didn't do his fucking job yeah. and fix it. So I sound perfect. Damn it, Garrett. Yeah, it's not my fault that you're recording from the inside of a garbage can with a chicken bone. We are. Uh, <laughs> I'm recording on the microwave in the hotel room. Yeah. But I would really appreciate it, Garrett, if you could teleport me from this hotel room into someplace a little bit more chill. Uh, I'm hoping to be a little bit passive. Mm. So if you could take me to the uh, circle of wagons with all the wimps, that would be cool. <laughs> I'd like to feel the leaves, please. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> the wind blows away from the tree. <laughs> the worst line, worst line of the fucking show so far. It's like, if the wind's blowing not directly down, you fucking idiot. It's blowing away from the tree. The tree is stationary. All right. I get what you're saying. Fly that in now. Uh, oh, wow. This place fucking sucks. <laughs> the food's delicious, though. At least it looks delicious. I don't know some if it's that, actually delicious. Give me some of that non so I can stand all these horrible color choices. So top of the episode here, we start off uh, with our first, no, I guess our second uh, scene of Loghain, because um, we saw him at the end of our previous episode, and he is um, kind of coming down the lane, walking walking downtown. What is it? Uh, Making his way downtown, past. walking fast. Walking fast, passing, passing his home And he's gailed and bound. Um, and we see, you know, these soldiers hopefully trying to stand up to him. He is not having their shit. Um, and then we see the king of Gildan telling him that he will never have Gildan's silver crown. And he basically proclaims himself as the dragon reborn who needs no such crown. Mm-hmm. Um, we see the first, I think, uh, use of the weave by uh, a male uh, channeler. weaver. Mm-hmm. Channeler, thank you. A male channeler. And um, we kind of see this like initial weave that we've seen that is very white and wispy appearing appear dark and tainted. And we also see these two figures kind of behind him talking to him as he actually heals this gentleman who's holding up a dagger against him. Yeah. I wanted to open up there and see what your thoughts were. Okay, so taking a step back to the whole thing, 
we, we, we finally got to see, you know, as you were, you were saying, a direct comparison of like female channel users, which are using, say, DAR. The inverse of that is male users using say din, and we know that it's tainted a little bit, or maybe it comes out in this episode a little bit further. A uh, lot of exposition with that, but this is the first time we get to see it, and it looks kind of filthy, or at least that's how I feel, knowing that the pristine white, clear look of the of the female usage of it, this this definitely looks dirty. Yeah, I was gonna say to support that, I really did wonder how they were gonna depict the male half of the source, mm-hmm. um, and whether or not it would look the same as the female version. And I like the fact that as Logan's channeling here, you can see. The weaves do look similar initially, and then you sort of see like this blackness come over the top of it. And it's not just that this is the male half, uh, it's like this is the taint, this is like the oil slick uh, that's supposed to like permeate the top of the source that you just can't touch this male magic without actually like dipping into. And at first it didn't occur to me until I was like really paying attention to the CGI of it, which is done very well here where you see like some of it's still white, like you can see mm-hmm. parts of it that are like similar to what it looks like when a female channels and then uh, the, the rest of it just sort of looks like it just has something on top of it, which is a very good look for it. I think they did it really well. And I also appreciated the fact that he does not move his hands when he channels. He's just completely stationary because, as I mentioned in a previous episode, like I didn't understand why they cut off the Aesodai's hands because you can still channel without it. I think it's a really good example of like someone who is taught how to do something like quote-unquote properly is probably going to be lots of hand motions, and then someone who is taught on their own. Uh, which Loghain is clearly taught on his own because male channelers don't exist. Uh, he's just like arms at his sides fucking shit up because it's like, it, it kind of reminded me of Harry Potter. Yeah. You don't have to say the spells out loud. You know, mm-hmm. you just do when you're an amateur and the older you get, like you keep your fucking mouth shut so you don't give away what you're casting. Mm-hmm. Like it's very big in the book. Like if you're dueling, you don't announce your spell. Uh, and it's something where it's, you, know, you don't need your hands for all. And I think it's very opposite and the fact that like the people who are like taught from the tower, like the Aes Sedai, are all using their hand motions when technically they shouldn't even have to. Mm-hmm. And this also kind of supports the whole reason why the white cloaks or the questioners perhaps removed that yellow Aes Sedai's hand. Guys, I'm gonna I'm gonna go into saying Aes Sedai. I'm coming around, I'm making an effort because we're all about adaptability and change over here at uh, Twats of Twats. Uh, anyway, the, innovators who adapt to change. Yeah, one thing I would like to also say about with the design of Satan, watching uh, a male use it, is the fact that not only did it look cool and it kind of it was you know it's described as like being like flowing like there's a river, so you kind of see these like it's just, it's constantly in motion and it's it's moving in like a direction, but we were able to also hear it this time too, and. It was not unlike the fact that when Nynaeve was listening to the wind on the bridge or, or Gwen was listening to the wind on the bridge in uh, the first episode, there are a lot of voice in it and you hear like these whispers and they're kind of like moving around. However, with this one, when you kind of got to Loghain's perspective before these two, like, you know, Adam described them as <laughs> there's two devils on your shoulders uh, coming into existence, that, that's just the sound of, of the power moving through a man is that it sounds... I'm assuming psychotic is what they're going for, is that it's it's actually the taint that is turning somebody crazy, and we're, we're actually getting that from our viewpoint. Yeah, and speaking of the two, like, devils on the guy's shoulder, uh, I think it's a pretty good interpretation. At least this is, the hot, this is how I interpreted it, <laughs> is that the first scene that we see in the series is these two guys being chased by the Reds, and that big reveal of, like, oh, there's no one else here. Uh, and speaking to some folks who haven't read the books, they thought that this person was just made to disappear by the Red Aja that was chasing him. Somehow they made him disappear versus that they were telling the truth, which is he's mad already and he's seeing this hallucination because uh, that's the case. So seeing it interpreted this way with Loghain having two wispy humanoid forms talking to him, to me it looked like, oh, he's not quite mad yet. Like he's getting there, which is why they haven't taken on full human form Uh, And they just sort of just look like these things that you could very much distinguish if you're still in your rational mind. Like, this is a hallucination versus someone who is fully mad who can't even tell that their companion doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's kind of how I took it. Like, he he should be filled with the taint because he's channeling so much power. But at the same time, if he's relatively new to it, he might not be full-blown mad yet. Sure. And you also brought this up, Garrett, and I, I wanted to bring it up, too, and have you, like, give you a chance to say this. But while we were doing the watch long, you said, I think, specific, maybe it was you or Adam, you guys specifically said the way that Loghain looked, like he was made to look almost like a messiah, yeah. right? Oh, that was my brilliant thought, actually. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, if it, if it was smart, it was definitely me. If it was, like, fine, it was just we'll give Adam one once in a while here. <laughs> yeah, because he has this very, you know, Jesus-y look, to put it bluntly. You know, he has, like, this longer hair, like, this beard. He kind of looks like the painting that's hung on my grandmother's wall. Um, and it, it just, 
in the book, he reads very differently, and I think the representation of him is just supposed to be like, I don't know, tall, lantern-jawed athlete from Connecticut, United States, uh, which is kind of how I pictured him as I read him. And when I see this, it's like he's sort of meant to look like a false prophet in our world so that we can sort of equate that. Now the episode divides us into the present day and shows us the three pathways of, um, you know, Nynaeve, Lan, and Moraine. And then we also have Egwene and Perrin, as well as Rand, Matt, and Tom. So this is kind of the first time that we see this camp of the Aes Sedai, which I actually really liked the look of. We see all the Aes Sedai, their interactions with their warders. We see a little bit of interaction between the green that we are introduced to, Kareen, Karen, Karen the Green, as well as Leandrin, uh, the red, I think, that we've met in the very, very first episode. And we also see Kareen healing Moraine, um, and then a few interactions between Leandrin and actually Nightneve. So I wanted to open this up a little bit and see what you guys thought about these relationships that are established here. Yeah, I like the, the look at the, the camp as well. Um, it felt very... One thing that, you know, is, is pretty awesome that they put in there is the fact that they put Loghain in this, like, um, it's like an abandoned... Cage in a cave. It's it's like a cave that had clearly like hewn doors out of out of the stone that is just very <laughs> old and it's been there for a while. And I'm really hoping that the uninitiated is picking up on the fact that like this is the same thing that was happening in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films. Is like he would put in little not like Easter eggs so to speak, but he would put in like parts of like the world in there that nobody points at it, but we know that that's a carryover from the Hobbit or that's from something from like the age gone by. And that's what we were seeing right here is this is the remnant of, I'm assuming, well, an age prior to the third age was what we're in right now. It's just like a previously fallen civilization that had a building here. And that just turned out to be the place that they have a little jail. I thought it was great otherwise that they just kind of build camp. We see some warders having fun <laughs> for the first time ever and probably the last. And uh, we get to see some flavoring of the uh, a different Aes Sedai and their relationship with the Warders, which um, I'm assuming is going to draw a lot of controversy on the message boards with uh, moms who don't like this show. I think that like it's it's interesting because I feel like while they do make a lot of distinction between the Aes Sedai, I think one of the things that is not as super clear, even though we only see the green Aja like bring their Warders back with them, and it, there seems to be like some sexy tension there um it's still very much i think to the uninitiated it seems like all the eyes to die just sleep with their warders and Mm -hmm. i kind of want to like bring that in and just say like i don't think that really happens no i i don't think so at all i think they i mean they were talking about how the bond is stronger than siblings or the bond is stronger than spouses it just makes me laugh because like the bond is stronger than sibling because like have you, you can't fuck your sibling it's like well I mean you are trying to be Game of Thrones so <laughs> sure <laughs> I think we're going to see a little bit more that has been teased out with uh, with Moraine and Lan um, in a literal teaser but um, the bond is not like you know oh we are we're co-workers it's like we are of one body and one set of uh, feeling and emotion um, which is interesting. And who cares what they fuck? They can fuck what they want. They can fuck whoever <laughs> they want. Who cares? So I'd totally like to jump in here, too, just really fast. I completely agree with you. And uh, I think that before I get into my thoughts on that, I want to talk about the pacing of the episode because we talked about episode one, like rapid pacing. Yep. Everyone that like enjoys the show and likes the books has this mindset of you can't include everything. Like they left Eamon's Field on page 146 or blah, 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 blah. And it's like, cool, we all get that, but you can't just ditch plot that's essential. And I think one of the problems that the show has currently is that the pacing is very, very different. It's either like fast forward mode or like dead stop. Aguin and Perrin have been with the traveling people for 2.5 episodes now. <laughs> you know, they, they're still with these traveling people and you're really extending the storyline. So it seems like they've grinded to a halt and now we have Moraine, Lan, and Nina Eve, like in this camp, which is fine. But the other problem the show has, and this is like one of the biggest problems I still have with the show, is that they don't show, they tell. Like that's one of the biggest rules that you have when it comes to any sort of like media is that show don't tell. So you can experience these things through the eye rather than it's just someone sitting there telling you. And it's just scene after scene after scene. And it reminds me of the prequels for Star Wars, where people are sitting down talking to each other to go over storyline because Mm. they don't know how to properly convey it. Uh, and it's just like, oh, here's the bond between the water and the Aes Sedai. And, you know, here's us talking about how we're proud of our Aes Sedai. And they're the ones that serve. 
And it's it's something where it's like it takes away from a Gwen scene in the second episode where Gwen says, you know, you're not paying attention to the fact that she's killing herself to help you. You know, and they didn't have to belabor the point. They didn't have to like all sit down. It was an argument between two characters where it's something that was starting to become apparent to the viewer is represented by one person in the show who notices versus we have like the campfire scene, which I felt was kind of a way to shoehorn in this dialogue where it's like, oh, like we can have this flirty moment between Nina even land to sort of build their chemistry. And I do think those two characters have like a lot of on-screen chemistry. But this brings me to my next segment of WTF Rafe. So if you want to join me over at camera two, the sexy camera, Rafe, what's up, man? I get it. We're halfway through the season. You're trying to do a lot of stuff. You got a lot of plates spinning. You got a lot of balls in the air. And I do say it that way because I think you can pump the fucking brakes on the over-sexualizing of everything. We get it. The greens, they have multiple warders. The green is the Aja, where if you want to marry your warder, that's the green. That's the Aja you're going to take. But you don't need to have a campfire scene where it's just dripping with ooey-gooey gravitas. Where they basically make it seem like every warder spends their life defending and fucking their Aya's to die. It's just not the case for the majority of warder and Aya's to die relationships. And it's like this show is just filled with over-sexualization and red herrings to make you think, oh, is this one thing? No, it's actually something else. Which brings me to one of my biggest compliments I can deliver to you, Rafe. This show is doing one thing very well. And it's in the eye of the world, the crux of the entire book is who is the dragon reborn. And despite the fact that some changes have been made that I don't like, I do like that the mystery continues to be which one of these characters is going to be the dragon reborn. We haven't gotten to the scenes with Matt yet that I think are fantastic. We're talking about Nina Eve over at the camp and she's back now and she was the first suspect that Moraine had. We talk about a Gween in passing dialogue being very strong. And the fact that you can have this sort of thing happen is kind of overshadowed by the same fact that everything has to be about fucking and we can't just get to the actual plot of the show. And it really, really annoys me that if you're trying to teach people about what an Aya Sedai water relationship is, everything has to be over-sexualized. Let's have them take a bath in the first episode. Let's have them just like making eyes at each other and walking into their... It's like... This episode, Rafe, I feel like this was built off of an experience you had at camp one time. <laughs> and uh, I just don't think you need to do it. Like, let the sex go and let the story shine. And that, for me, is the biggest problem I have. What the fuck, Rafe? Let's move on to Rand and Matt and and Tom, who are, I guess, now trying to escape from Breen Spring. Um, and basically trying to figure out what to do now that they're just traveling the world and they get mildly ambushed um, by a family because they're trying to like sleep in their barn for the night. Um, And it's here where we start to see some changes happen in Matt that I think are really interesting. How so? Was it surprising for you? I don't know if it was surprising. I guess like since having read the book, I expected there to be some changes. This show was making it happen a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the things that like looked really good to me and made me feel like, oh, this is actually very interesting is the whole like Matt saying like, oh, I feel sick kind of vomits. And we see that same blackness that we saw in, you know, two episodes ago in mm-hmm. Shader Logoth coming out of his mouth. We also see a, a direct correlation with stuff coming out of Matt's mouth or like this, um, this grossness or evil or whatever, until we also see it associated with Loghain. They're kind of drawing a parallel there to a degree. Yeah, I think they're really challenging the viewer to decide, do you think that this has to do with channeling, or do you think that this has to do with what we saw in Shatter Lagoth? Mm-hmm. And again, there's like a little bit of dialogue letting you know that this is different, this is a different kind of evil, but which one do you think it is? Mm-hmm. And they do also state like, you know, they, they show you that Matt's horse is unnerved, you know? And they, they make it a point to have that in there, again, as like kind of just passing dialogue that later comes up while they're at this this farm. You know, when Tom gives us the big speech about, you know, his backstory, his, his nephew, uh, why he's helping the boys, and that he thinks that, you know, Matt is showing the telltale signs of someone who's sick from male channeling. I think this is, again, like kind of what I brought up in WTF Rafe. This is how showing things makes sense, because you, you build this tension through the viewer of seeing like, oh, he's sick. You know you're searching for the Dragon Reborn. Is it the dagger? You know, is it something that's infected him from Shadar Lagoth? Or is it the fact that he might be the dragon? 
and it kind of like has you excited to sort of speculate on that and then you have a character within the world speculating by giving you backstory by giving you this information versus like just sitting down and having a conversation where everyone's drinking uh, which is like you know it, it feels forced versus like Tom's conversation with Rand where he's like this is why I'm here like this looks bad mm -hmm. um, and I think this just is a much stronger scene we've only been seeing increases in dialogue quality over time granted we only had Tom for what like a total of 18 screen minutes that's probably a huge overestimation but we just barely got to meet Tom now and now we're seeing him in this episode and he his character is a person who can speak the most eloquently that you're ever going to hear. There's something about the way that that is actually being conveyed to the viewer. You know, you feel sympathetic to him about his nephew who was a channeler and no longer, uh, or who was gentled and then ultimately killed himself because of it. Like it was a great plot point and also you, you gain sympathy for Tom for having to have this experience and it also puts a hell of a reason that he would even waste his time hanging out with Matt and Rand. Also, Tavaren, they haven't really been talking about how like these boys and girls and everybody from the Two Rivers is essentially like drawing people in with it. But I do like how they are explaining it by having actual character choices, you know, as opposed to just like the wheel is sweeping them up, you know? Yeah, and I think this is a really good spot to explain to anyone who actually has not read the books and they've mentioned Tavaren and kind of what we're talking about. Because this is something that has been mentioned. I don't think it's been explained enough in the show is that a Tavaren person is someone who has like uh, a destiny or they're fated to be great or notable in some way. And, and imagine if something were to get in that person's way and like the world just sort of like moved something like an obstacle away from them or like brought someone into their life, you know, to try and deliver them to where they need to be. And that's sort of what a Tavaren is, is it's someone who has this like massive destiny unfolding. And so it would be like, you know, if Rand and Matt were not able to get where they needed to go, a Tavaren would pull in someone who could guide them, which is what Tom is essentially. Uh, and I think that the show bringing it up immediately in episode one and then being like, ah, eh, whatever. <laughs> it's so <laughs> dumb because it is very important. And they reference it, you know, specifically for a reason in the books. It's because you, you should understand that it's like, you know, people kind of go out of their way and act a little bit differently around folks who have like this destiny that's supposed to unfold before them. The way that they explain it is just that, like, you know, the pattern weaves itself around these people. Mm -hmm. Right. All right, and uh, I want to go ahead and say one thing about the uh, time we're spending with Perrin and Egwene over there with the uh, traveling folk is that I had mentioned in the past that Perrin is this guy who is a pacifist. He doesn't like to hurt people. He doesn't like to be in combat. That's just not his way. Uh, and I think that there's this really great relationship when they spend this time with the traveling folk who are true pacifists. And it finally gets explained in this episode. They didn't even pick up weapons. You know, and Perrin asks them, if you get attacked, what would you do? It's like, we would run if we could. We would die if we had to because they're that dedicated to their passive ways. And it really puts Perrin off, and it does so, you know, in the book as well. And I think that this is where I really picked up on Perrin's character when I read him. Like, he's not exactly a pacifist. He doesn't like to hurt things. You know, he enjoys creation. He enjoys, like, life. Uh, but if something were to threaten his and his own, he is that person that you saw in episode one who will pick up something and fight back. Uh, and I think this is where he kind of realizes in the book who he is, you know. And it's, it's a duality that he's going to have to deal with, you know, for the rest of his life. And I think that it, it kind of tried to do it justice in the show, but it's already like so heavy handed. It's really hard to delineate between a person who's so traumatized they don't want to attack anything anymore and like people who just sincerely believe that it's just better for the world if they don't fight back. And I think that's another reason why giving him a wife and having him accidentally kill her is just the wrong way to go because I don't think for someone who's just introduced to the show this is going to balance that whatsoever you know like she has the little speech where it's like has your life been better since you picked up the axe mm. like you have to think about it more there's more nuance to it if it's like well obviously not you know it's like did he it should be did he enjoy the act of killing something in self-defense and I don't think that you know you trust your audience enough to actually contemplate that question if you just give him someone that he accidentally murders. And it also kind of makes Perrin look like a buffoon. And I, I, that's why I'm really like still bothered by this whole thread. But one of my favorite scenes in the book is him realizing the difference between himself and these traveling folk. And I, I think it's just, it's not as impactful in the show. I don't know what you guys thought about it. I'm more or less with Perrin. He's essentially like open to other walks of life now at this point. Because I think that he is, he's in pain, you know, he's, 
grieving the not only his actions, but I mean, we laugh about it. This character was married and who knows what the relationship was, but he lost his wife and he lost his wife by his hands. Like he's not in a good spot, no matter what the case is. And he's he's hearing what this uh, Tuathawan is saying and he's confused. He's like, why the hell would you ever, why would you not fight back? If someone's gonna come at you, you should do something about it. And they go, we do. And us doing not violence is our way of fighting back. And I don't know, it's just a very, it's, it's such a peaceful philosophy. It's a nice sentiment, uh, especially when we have a lot of particular violence in the show, but also in like everyday 2021, how the rest of the world is going right now. And again, we're all coming from the United States of America, which we have no shortage of that out here. I don't have much more to say about it. I, I do think maybe this is a good transition point because, you know, we get this dream sequence with Matt and Rand. And in the dream sequence, you know, we kind of transition where Rand's walking and he kind of walks by these important people in his life. And he actually sees Perrin hammering what we initially think is like an anvil, but it's actually his wife. And you hear that like and yeah. the hammer on the anvil, but it's his wife, even though Rand has never seen this before. Um, we see Matt walking and his hands are bloodied. Um, and then we, of course, get that flash of the creature with like the glowing eyes and like stealing away a gleam. Uh, before he wakes up and Matt is gone. This was the this was so much more dreamy than the other yes. two dreams that we've seen so far. I just want to throw that up top. Yeah, and I think it was a lot shorter and it had like smash cuts, you know, between him walking. Uh, and I, I think this is the first one where we see where it's not just like meant to be jump scares. It's meant to be like he's taking something from one of these uh, characters that he's taunting. And I say he referencing this character with like the inferno for the eyes and the mouth. Uh, it's like he's holding something hostage or holding something back. Uh, and I, I, as soon as I saw this, I was like, oh, maybe this is going to inspire Rand to, like, mention Aguin, like, this is his motivation. He's trying to get back together, whether he's trying to find her. But that is kind of tossed to the wayside, as Faye said, because he wakes up from the dream. And lo and behold, Matt's no longer there. Mm -hmm. This is more dreamy than the other two were. The other two, I think, was more for the viewer that we kind of want to. We were talking about red herrings earlier. You know, we want them to be like, what's happening? Oh, wow, there's a scary guy in here. And it's just like, ah, it was all a dream. Hooray. Now we sunk into the dream knowing that it was a dream. But it was a longer shot of our uh, boogeyman in there. We got to hold on his face for like extra beat, which was enough for like people to go, oh, okay, now I see what this fucking thing is. And it's pretty weird. But you were also saying, Adam, too, like, um, I, I don't remember exactly how you phrased it, but you said something like... Brilliantly, without a doubt. No, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> smash the credits. You said something to the effect of, like, he is in there longer because we now are seeing, like, a purpose for him being in the dreams. I'm wondering if he's now becoming stronger. He cracked the shell in the first place to get into the kids' brains at night, and now he's widening that, that little pinhole that he made to be there a little bit longer and a little bit stronger and a little bit more forcefully. Yeah, he has like more influence over them. Mm -hmm. Because especially after this, we do see like the effects of like the shadow and the evil, right? Like we can't find Matt. They run into the house and lo and behold, the entire family's been slaughtered. We did get a little sequence where we like, oh, look at this cute little girl who gave Matt her doll. Now she's dead. Mm. They do that <laughs> yeah. in this show, don't they? Yeah. yeah, it's it's very heavy-handed with, like, the here's a nice, sweet character, and now yeah, they're dead. Mm -hmm. um, I, I will say, too, because when he first ran in, when they were lo looking for Matt, and you see the family dead, the, the one person you don't see is the little girl. And I thought, you know, oh, maybe, you know, if this is Matt's doing, he spared the little girl because it reminds him of his sister. Mm -hmm. um, and Matt's holding this dagger up, not to steal the, uh, like, the storytelling away from you, Faye, no, but no, he's, no, holding, he's holding the dagger up and pointing at, like, some unknown spot, and he says, I see you. And I thought, oh, he's crazy. He did this. He's pointing out the little girl. And then we get the fade. Mm -hmm. uh, and my initial thoughts were like, why would the fade hide? Why wouldn't he just come through and be like, oh, Rand's sleeping. There's one. Oh, Tom's sleeping. Oh, there's two. You know, but he instead decides to go for this family. Um, and, and Garrett made some pretty brilliant observations when it came to this. And I'm sure Faye thought of it too, and I'm just a dum dumb. But no, uh, no, no, talk, no, no, talk no, to no, them no. a little bit about those weapons. I would say that, you know, you notice this like nice shiny dagger that Matt's holding up, right? Mm -hmm. But it's completely clean. Yeah. Which you notice that first. But then it has to be three frames long. When Tom is fighting the Fade, he doesn't actually score a hit on it, but you do see one of their blades, and it looks like the longer one is covered in red. So it just implies that the Fade's the one that did the damage. Then you actually think back to Matt, like, oh, wait, did Matt do this? When he's pointing the dagger up, you go, nope, his blade's clean, so he did not do 
Massive slaughter on a family, which by the way, guys, that's kind of the MO of a mirror drawl. It just kind of likes to fucking kill shit and it's disgusting. It's supposed to go for its targets. Uh, and I think maybe that this thing is a little bit confused as to what it's hunting for, or the showrunners are a bit confused as to what a murder drawl is supposed to be hunting. <laughs> I, uh, but I kind of um, got the sense that, you know, there was a little like, you know, scene in Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring where like, the like Nazgul come and they're like stabbing people in their beds and then they all scream when they like uncover the beds and it's just pillows and I yeah. think this probably happened. They're like, oh, we're killing Matt and Rand. Ah, oh, fuck, it's just a family. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a family. Yeah. It is not as I pictured it would go, and we haven't had him in the show for that long. But the fact that you get to see Tom's true character, where it's, you know, they actually question his motivation. Like maybe he's a dark friend. You know, maybe he's a dark friend. He killed what's her face to convince us that he's uh, on our side because he's actually going to be the one that's trying to take us in, which I thought was cool. It doesn't even show paranoid on Matt's part. It shows paranoid on Rand's part. And I enjoyed the fact that when push comes to shove, one of the scariest things an actual human being could ever come face to face with is one of these fades. And Tom does not hesitate to defend two people who are essentially strangers to him. And the fact that he has so many fucking knives on him, the character <laughs> yeah. it most reminded me of is the Joker from Dark Knight. Mm. And I was thinking when I was watching, I was like, this is like if the Joker was a good guy. <laughs> like he sings, he's handsome, he still has the nice long hair, his clothes are really put together, and of course he has a fuck ton of knives, which he knows what to do with. Uh, and then of course they flee, because Tom tells them to, and he's just left behind, and you don't get to see what happens in his confrontation with this fade. That was such a cool scene, but I... The only complaint that I have of it is I wish it was a little bit longer to be like, you know, Tom says, lads, get out of here. And they just like, yep. And they go, you know, I wish it was a I little found this bit more cool. realistic than if they had to be told multiple times. Like if Tom was like, Adam, you should. He'd be like, where'd he go? Because I'd be fucking gone. I'd be like, thanks, Tom. Yeah, I was going to say, if the three of us were in there, we would, we would have booked it immediately. We would actually probably push him into the fade. But no, it's the boys here. I wish they would have hung just a second longer because it felt a little more plotty that it was like leave okay versus like leave but wait a second we should we then it would have been a great opportunity for time to be like look at me get the fuck out you, of here you have to run now yeah. and I, I think it's another evident it's, it's something else of like it's a little bit rushed I thought it worked pretty well mm -hmm. and it's because I know the character pretty well and I, I do sincerely wonder for folks who have not been exposed to the source material have you known Tom long enough for this to break your heart because it should like this scene should make you have the feels of like, man, I can't believe like one of the genuinely good people that I like and is charismatic and I trust as the viewer or listener or, or excuse me, as the viewer uh, is gone or is like to me at least left behind to fight something I already know to be incredibly deadly because it is sad. Like this for me is one of the most poignant moments of the show so far. It's they have to leave this guy behind who's been helping them mm -hmm. and he's sacrificing himself for them. And I'm just like, he showed up in last episode. Like yeah. how much attachment does a normal viewer have? I'm guessing right. not, I, not as much as I, there should be. Sorry. I also don't feel like this TV show has conveyed how dangerous the Murdral are. Yeah. And you kind of get the sense of like, oh, he's fighting this creature. It's kind of scary, but Leech man. whatever. You know, maybe he'll be back in the next scene. You don't get the sense that, like, this is a deadly character that, like, everybody is afraid of. And, you know, most people don't survive encounters with a murdral. Mm -hmm. The boys have run away. Uh, Tom is left in limbo fighting this murdral. Let's get back to the Aes Sedai, because there's a lot more that happens in this camp. Um, <laughs> I just like to point out <laughs> super fast. I'm sorry, Faye. I, I mentioned how annoyed I was that their colors that they wear is just all purely one color. Like, oh, a green yeah. only wears a, like green clothing. Their tents match that too. <laughs> like, yeah. god damn, man, how boring is your life? You have one color for everything you own. I will it better be your favorite color. I will say this though, when you see a full out Aes Sedai battle, it's easy to see who's doing what though. Yeah, that's true. Speaking of Aes Sedai battle, all right, so we get to this point where we know that Loghain is powerful. They need at least two full sisters to control him at all times, which looks super cool. Yeah. Um, and we also get this scene kind of where we, they start talking. Leandrin essentially sounds like she has been coming around and talking to all the other sisters and saying, guys, why do we have to keep bringing this person, you know, to the Amaralyn seat? And we're wasting all of our time and energy trying to, like, suppress his his ability to channel when we could just dental him right here. And it seems like the only person right now who's kind of disagreeing with her is Corrine or Karen or whatever. Mm -hmm. And she, um, I don't think she's talked to Moraine about it right. because she knows Moraine would be like, um, no. Yeah. 
What's what's interesting too is this is the first time that we're really going to get to see divisions among yes. among the Aes Sedai. The Ajas aren't factions per se, but they're comparable to like political parties. Political parties, Harry Potter houses to a degree too. Like you, you will stick within your own Ajas, but then Ajas will work with each other and sometimes they fall out of uh cooperation, I guess, with others. Like they'll be at odds with like like the Reds and the Browns will just never work together because the Reds want to destroy men and the Browns are like, no, we need to preserve them because we need to study them. You know, like that's just a whatever example. But the the long story short is you kind of see some politicking with Leandrin apparently talking to everybody except for the green leader here, which the other thing too is that everybody has their own agendas. You know, they talk about how Moraine is like, she's going to get into everything because she's on a, like a truth mission essentially. Leandrin wants to at even great expense to herself will put down any man that channels and uh that is what we are going to see in a little bit here and yeah we hear you know alana essentially talking about the purposes of the green right she says i would join the green because i you know thought it sounded so cool i would be the battle aja um and we get that sense as well um so we kind of hear a little dialogue about Leandrin saying like, hey, you know, what if we don't contain him? We should just gentle him right now. You see Moraine talking a little bit with the other um, Aes Sedai as well, just about this about this man and kind of wondering, is he the dragon or not? Um, and I wanted to kind of like cut us to the battle scene, right? Where we have Nynaeve and Lan having this moment, this very tender moment of him telling her about um, potentially her past, and she's learning a little bit about her past through him. Looks like they're about to make out. They don't, which is really sad. Um, Listener, the watch-along Faye was just constantly crying the whole time. She's like, when are they going to do it? When are they going to put their tongues together? I was kind of disturbed by how often she was yelling, put it in her. Yeah. I was just like, whoa, (laughs) pump your brakes. I was like, when are you going to put the baby in her? Um, (laughs) Anyway, so... We get this very tender scene. It gets cut off because you hear sounds of battle. And we realize that Logan's army is here. Let's talk a little bit, I think, about, first of all, everything that happens. But I also definitely want to spend some time talking about this battle sequence because this battle sequence is freaking cool. Let's knock the battle sequence out because um, it we could never do it justice by talking about it. But it is something that I will actually probably view again after this. Just that scene because it was cool enough to see. You know, they did a great job with it because it looked cool. It sounded cool. It did feel like the Harry Potter battle when they're waving their wands around and like shooting, you know, stuff. But I don't care. That's how they're manifesting the writing of the power being used as a weapon. I said this before, uh, before, you know, for as dangerous as these warders are, like Lan, he's like, wow, this guy's going to kill you with, you know, two fingers and no weapon. Moraine is always the one who just outshines him, you know, much like the flame versus the, the sun. Uh, it's the same thing with all of these warders here. They're in service of their eyes to die. And it's because as awesome and deadly and protective as they are, the eyes to die are always going to be the bigger force that is, is doing better. It reminds better. me of uh, Adventure Zone Season 1. If you've never listened to Adventure Zone Season 1's D&D podcast, and when they get towards the end of the first arc, you know, they have two spellcasters that are like summoning angels and like, abyssal monsters from the deep and then one of them is a fighter and he's like I swing a sharp stick <laughs> like you really just really well. get the sense it doesn't really matter about the fact that yeah he's like a level 12 fighter which is what a, like land would equate to or whatever but he, he's very aware of the fact that he doesn't have like these big showy things we have this character step in with the two axes too, explaining what the warders are to Aes Sedai and he says Aes Sedai means servant of all and she goes, well, then what does that make the warders? And Land interjects, proud. It makes them proud to be serving the Aes Sedai. And, and that really just put a button on it for me. And also, I think for anybody else who just, it just helps even more so uh, to understand. And then another example of over-sexualizing, as soon as he says proud, and you're like, damn, that was a good line. Someone says, and tired. I don't know how you keep up with Moraine. <laughs> it's like, fuck off, dude. Why did you have to ruin this scene? Before you continue, I want to cut in with who's hot on twat today. Today on Who's Hot on Twat, I'm going to put it in here and we're going to pretend like the very end of the episode doesn't exist. But based on the rest of the episode, today's Who's Hot on Twat is, of course, Alan Mandragoran, Um, which I'm sure Garrett and Adam are surprised that I've waited until episode four to talk about how hot Lan is. (laughs) Absolutely. Disappointed, even. I haven't chosen him up until this point. Not only, I feel like, does Lan 
do a great job here of defending everybody else in the battle. I think the really lovely parts is like we kind of start to see a little bit more into his character this episode. We realize that he is learned, he speaks the old tongue. He has these rituals where he honors his people that have died. Um, he has these like, you know, kind of like fun relationships with his like other warder buddies. We're starting to see him through Nynaeve's eyes where we think, you know, initially Lan is this like battled hardened warrior, doesn't talk very much, you know, whatever, gruff old man. But now he's like softening. We're starting to like get to know his character. And I think very much like Nynaeve, we're falling in love with Lan. And that's why he is this week's Who's Hot on Twat. Ooh. I, fucking, I love the interstitials. It's so good. Love it. <laughs> Lan seems to have taken a really hard nerf, you know, versus like the super badass he was in the books. And I'm not sure if I'm okay with it, but when you bring that point up, Faye, you literally just completely changed my mind. He's taken this hard nerf because we need to see him be vulnerable because that is something that he is not very frequently in the books. And you've mentioned it before, like, Robert Jordan does not write romance very well. No. Yeah, and having this character who is someone who you can tell is this badass, be vulnerable, and having his, like, friends nearby, if these warders are his friends, talking shit about, like, oh, he's bad with horses, you know, and having him pray and explain things and be tender, you're just probably not going to get that from him very frequently. So it, it kind of makes me understand why he's taken such a big nerf. But uh, his abilities, <laughs> notwithstanding, uh, I'll just sort of shift into what's going to wrap up our episode. And what wrapped up this episode is that during this battle with, uh, that's raging outside, Leandrin and uh, Karini are inside talking about whether or not they should just gentle Loghain. And in the midst of this conversation, he breaks free. Uh, and it really immediately made me think, did she drop the shield so he could break free or did he actually break free? I don't think that she dropped the shield because I think that that would have been too obvious of a thing to walk into. It was like the shield's gone, but there was not a throwaway line, but they're like, can we talk freely around Loghain here? And they go, yeah, we're channeling air into his ear and plugging his ears so he can't hear us. There's a very obvious scene later where I think it's actually that scene where Leandrin and Karini are talking and Loghain actually reacts by smirking ever so slightly implying that he can hear. So I think what Leandrin did is she didn't sabotage the mission by dropping the shield, but she sabotaged essentially the holding cell there by allowing him to hear, which means that he could have like chosen the moment where they were most vulnerable to strike. And he did. And he knocked them on their fucking asses. Yeah. And in this scene, it's it's uh, something that I find a little bit weird. They cut back and forth between the battle and Loghain freeing himself and melting the cage that he was in, which was just super cool looking. That was awesome. Uh, and then you see Moraine stride in, and I was just like, this is a sweet scene. You're seeing Moraine face down a false dragon. You know, she's a badass. She's not backing down, even though she knows how powerful this guy is. She has to have a second sister there just to contain his power. She walks in, the first line of dialogue is like, well, it'll take the others a while to get here, so we have time to chat. And like you said, Garrett, during the watch long, exactly what I thought, which is like, wait, this kind of implies that she had something to do with him breaking mm -hmm. free. Yeah. So I was like, wow, like, is, is this about to get really weird now? And she asks him to, like, convince her he's the Dragon Reborn. And then I think through the, the storytelling of, like, how they shoot this, you sort of see, like, she's stalling. Mm -hmm. You know, she's absolutely stalling. And he doesn't, you know, act as crazy as you think he would. But she definitely tries to convince him, like, I need you to understand, like, the, the reasons you think you're the Dragon Reborn are signs of the madness. You know, and you need to know that because you're so strong. Jumping one step back, though, the reason that even us were like, did Moraine have something to do with it? Is because having something to do with it is kind of Moraine. It's not out of her character. Let's put it that way. Also, like, how did she know at this moment to come in? Hmm? We don't well, know. Well, you should be able to sense, like, you know, another woman channeling. So she senses, like, that the shield just vanished if she were nearby. Mm -hmm. You know, I can, I'm glad they didn't show, like, a scene of her outside the cave, like, straight near herself. Like, all right, let's go fucking delay this turd nugget. I do think that they distorted her shadow coming into the cave a little bit more so than just what normal sunlight or the flame would do. Because <laughs> the shadow started as something uh, nefarious and then came down to Moraine. And that's either hey, is this uh, something that we should be worried about because Moraine inherently has a dark side to her or like a ends justify the means kind of personality? Or was it supposed to be like, oh, here comes a bad guy to free the bad guy. Uh, oh, it's just Moraine. We're good here. It's, it's just our, it's our happy little church mouse who's going to come and save the day. I kind of take it as like Moraine casts a bigger shadow than we think she would, right? She's kind of this, she is this small woman in the book. She's about five foot two. She's kind of skinny, 
doesn't look like she like does much. But I think like the whole point of her character is that she has her hand in everything. She casts this big shadow, so to so to speak, because she's she's kind of involved in everything in this world and has a hand in everything that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. That's a good, a really good point. Yeah, excellent point. And uh, she's able to buy enough time for her sisters to regain their consciousness, and uh, they're able to blast Logan back and start to try to shield him again. The three of them together, and you know, I, I know it's been pretty controversial having like all these hand gestures, but I really thought like the unison in which they do this to try and shield him was great. We see Karini, which we were calling the <laughs> Ayasadai Karen, uh, just because of her name similarity, uh, die here in this confrontation. I want to also say that Karini dies saving her other two sisters as well. I thought that was such a valorous point. We have the other green Sedai talking about how what it means to be green. It's like proud in his battle. You see that embodied in that scene when she, where she shields her other two sisters and not herself. Just a really wonderful moment. I think it's a great point to counteract the joke that I'm about to make, which is like Star Trek has a very famous thing where if you're wearing a red shirt and you go on an away mission, you're going to die. I think Wheel of Time is going to have something where it's like if you're a character Rafe Judkins made up, you are only here to serve the plot by dying. <laughs> so that's exactly what happens. Could be, um, could be. Uh, and Leandrin, we get to see a nice scene of Leandrin drawing too much of the power and her cheeks are crackling. Mm-hmm. And Moraine warns her against doing that because she'll burn herself out. And Leandrin just seems genuinely upset that she lost you know, a friend. And, and this gives enough time for uh, Karini's warrior to understand she has died, which usually sends him into a battle rage. Karini's warrior shows up and is like, I'll use my axes on the one power. And uh, it's one dumb and two, somehow that actually has an effect, which as everyone else sort of rushes in, Freeze Loghain enough to blow up his axes and this shrapnel shoots out. And uh, this is one of my other like reactions to Land taking a huge nerf. You know, he has the reflexes of a stationary object. He has the reflexes of a tree. Uh, he like you know. rolled a two on his yeah. deck save. It was terrible. He just takes this thing right in the neck where it's like, oh, Land's done for. Uh, and then you see the rest of the Ace to Die like kind of fall to the ground. It seems like Loghain is just like taking the victory here. And then uh, Nina E through grief and anger uh, explodes with rage and channels for her first time on screen. Uh, and they have this dialogue that happened between Moraine and Loghain just before this, that his power is a trickle to the raging sun that will be the dragon reborn. And then we see, well, you know, essentially what just looks like a bright sunspot, like the biggest J.J. Abrams lens flare of all time <laughs> with Nina Eve in the middle of it. I also kind of like the symbolism of her braid, which shows that she's like ready to court, but sort of a young woman still. Her braid explodes. And when she's done channeling and she heals everyone and just like shows Loghain, despite the fact he's not supposed to be able to see it, but somehow sees it. <laughs> she's significantly more powerful than any of them could have ever imagined. You know, her, her hair comes down and like falls at her shoulders rather than being tying a braid behind her. It's like the literal symbolism of like, she's no longer a kid. You know, she's no longer this person who's bound. tied to Eamon's field or bound in any way, shape or form. She's broken all these bonds and she's completely free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the rest of the Aes Sedai show up and Leandrin convinces them to join with her so that they can gentle Loghain on the spot, which is like this really vicious and visceral scene of them ripping it from him. And for me, it was always just like cutting a cord when I read it Mm -hmm. Uh, and seeing this in a different way. It was like kind of brutal. Uh, I literally said during the watch long, like poor Loghain, like that makes me feel bad for Loghain. But before, you know, we get any other thoughts on it, because that is kind of the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. I do want to pitch it to Faye because Faye, you had some thoughts on this and I want to hear them. (laughs) This was the part of the episode where I was, everything else in this episode, I was like, okay, okay, you know, we're like plodding along. This scene just like made this episode so intolerable for me. I think the one thing that like made it so strange is that I think, you know, we know that Lan is supposed to be this great warrior. He's essentially supposed to be like the best warrior in the world. And he just kind of like takes an ax to the neck, starts to bleed out and dies. I was like, what happened? He's supposed to be like this great warrior. He's supposed to be able to dodge everything, but he can't dodge this like piece of shrapnel that comes at him. And then we kind of have this, I really hate like the Dukes Ex Machina that come in for for TV shows. And I just felt like, oh yeah, here's Nynaeve, you know, as like the power coming in and like healing everything. Because we do know in the books that Nynaeve has this power. She channel, but she's like super, super, and I just felt like this was like a Okay, hey there, listener. This is post-production Garrett. Um, listening back at this, we launched into some pretty heavy spoiler territory on this next point of phase critique. Approximately about five minutes worth of it. So, if you have not read the books and you don't want 
part of this season's plot spoiled for you, we're going to skip these next five minutes. But also, instead of having you do the work to get there, I'm just cutting out these five minutes and putting them at the back of the episode after the music plays. So if you don't care, take a listen. It's really just a continuation of this part of the conversation. There's no additional jokes. Even if there were, they wouldn't be that funny. If you have read the books or you do not care about spoilers and you want to hear that, just keep the episode playing afterwards. Either way, wanted to make sure that everybody was covered here. So, post-production, Garrett, out. All right, guys, that was an episode. We are finished up with uh, season one, episode four. Overall impressions, we've already dissected the shit out of it, but just higher low or scale of one to 10 or fucking Scoville, give me something. Faye, what did you think? Initially, I had like hated this episode and I was so mad about it, but that was just because it was my visceral reaction to the last scene. I think, you know, on a scale of one to 10, this is a solid like six or seven for me because the rest of the episode makes up for it. Like I said, we get to see these tender moments with Lan and Nynaeve. We get all these other relationship building. Six to seven. Hit me, Adam. So I'm, I'm viewing this from the lens that Garrett has been trying to teach me to view this from, which is to disconnect myself from the source material. And I really think it's important to do that at this point because, not because Garrett said to, because fuck him, but <laughs> because the people that are going to make sure that this show is continuing to be made are the viewers who haven't read the books. You know, And that's what it really comes down to. And I don't think you have to dumb things down because I don't think viewers are stupid. But if I'm viewing this through the lens of a person who's never had the source material, I think this episode probably winds up being like a 7.5 or an 8 for them because the end was pretty fucking epic and that battle was badass. You got exposition, which I'm really sick of them talking to me instead of showing me stuff, but it was important. So that's where I'd put it there. For me, in my brain of like the stuff that I think that they rushed, like the sadness with Tom Marilyn not quite being there the way it should have been, and my brain tells me it's a 6, so I'm just going to go smack dab for the middle and say it's a 7 out of 10. I'll get it an 8.5, maybe even a little bit higher. I really like Damn. this episode. I Hey, I mean, the moment that I finished watching it, I messaged the both of you guys. I'm like, two things. Number one, this is not the books. Number two... This is fucking awesome. I am loving what they did. And as far as storytelling is concerned, knowing what we have for the past three episodes into this, there's a lot of friends that I have who are watching this who are not readers of this. And I've been like, yeah, check it out. It's so cool. Like, these books are great. And they're like, I could read the whole series before this episode airs. I'm like, no, you need like fucking six years to do that. It's such a massive undertaking to do the books, as we already said, that I'm forgetting also that like some people just don't like reading. They just like watching a show, and that's who this is being developed for. It's being developed for the general audience. That and breaks my heart. It's being developed for people who don't like to read. Well, okay. I, I shouldn't say that. I would also say that it's being developed for the general audience, which it's made to be entertaining. And I could say I am solidly entertained by this, and I'm enjoying it a lot. So I'm having a good time, guys. I'm glad that you're also here with me, too, and I'm glad that I'm also stealing you from the edge i'm i'm whatever's inside matt right now pulling you guys into into my you, my territory actually, you did just say like the show is for people who don't like to read to two english majors <laughs> yes so. and i will also point out i would like to change my rating i, I don't want to give it a seven i would like to rate it on a scale of one to a hundred and give it a 69 because it was nice <laughs> it was nice pretty nice. nice nice all right guys uh we're gonna get out of here but uh adam we have a couple of new additions for people to especially contact us guys listen last week was a fucking nightmare because and nobody asked us to do this but we were like we should have all episodes ready for all episodes that are released and yeah we got a curveball two weeks before we actually started tracking we thought we were going to do one at a time it'd be great no we just did three episodes in a row edited them got them out for you so i hope you appreciate that they were in your feed on time just garrett worked very hard i did i'm not saying that though but what i'm saying is that we 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 had on the job training is essentially what we had going there for how this was going to go i hope this episode leveled it out a little bit um main thing though is that we do have some uh, social media and contact information available for you and adam's going to throw that in right now so if you would like to contact us you can hit us up on any of our social medias which are now active you can go to facebook.com slash wheel of time pod and you can hit us up on any of the social medias at wheel of time pod so twitter instagram and soon i'll be making a tiktok i'm 36 years old so i just scream tiktok into the ether and expect it to work because i don't know how that happens but i will learn it and we also have the uh, website you can type in wheel of time podcast.com and go there or twatsatwats.com or the wheel of time show about the wheel of time show if you really like typing.com i will say the reason to go over to the website for sure is because adam made Faye, me and himself write uh episode reviews and i don't like doing them uh but i do them. Yeah, sure you do and <laughs> 
And the long story short is it's good to get like kind of a TLDR breakdown of what's happening. But here's my guarantee you guys, if you don't like reading, which I've already talked about, uh, you're only going to get maybe two sentences out of me. And then a very arbitrary scale as to, as to how we felt about the episode. So just head over there for that. And uh, in addition to our social medias, you can also go over to patreon.com slash wheel of time pod. Uh, so, yeah, we've talked about the watch along episodes where we watch the episode. We talk over it basically the entire time. Uh, and if you would like to join us while we watch it, I would recommend watching it once. And then if you're going to go back and watch it again, watch it with us because it's a fun time. Uh, and you can sign up for a Patreon and get those episodes. The first three are already posted. And by the time these episodes go live, we will also have the newest one posted as well. So check that out at patreon.com slash wheel of time pod. If you want to see all of our beautiful faces, go ahead and go into our website. You can also contact us there and let us know what you think. If you think that we're all silly geese for not liking these episodes, let us know. I'm a silly goose on the loose, everybody. All right, listener, that was uh, season one, episode four. We are very happy to have you along with us, and thank you for giving us your time. We love you, and candy corn is delicious. You can go to hell if you disagree. I hate you guys so much. Candy corn is fucking disgusting. I hate (laughs) you so much. Entering spoiler territory. And then we kind of have this. It, I, I really hate like the Duke, the Duke's Ex Machina that come in for um, for TV shows, and I just felt like, oh yeah, here's Nynaeve, you know, as like the power coming in and like healing everything. Because we do know in the books that Nynaeve has power, has this power. She can't really channel very well unless she's super angry, but she's like super super powerful. And I just felt like this was like a very heavy-handed way of showing what she has in her power. <laughs> and I get it. They're trying to be like, oh, is she actually the Dragon Reborn? Or is it maybe like this person? And like, are, we're trying to get all these like, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. But we know that she's not the Dragon Reborn. We already established that she's too old, that she's not the Dragon Reborn. So like, why this like, you know, huge display of her power? Um, in this very unconventional way that I thought was like super not subtle and super not Robert Jordan. That's yeah, adding, adding in the Thank mystery of... My TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be Faye talks from now on. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> adding in this like mystery of like, oh, it's not just the three boys uh, that exist in the book, but like it could be a girl too, you know, adds a nine Eve and a Gween to the list of suspects. And I think it's another example of, you know, the show makes this excuse of like, we're trying to rush everything. So that's why we have to like, you know, ditch stuff that's very important, but we're also going to add stuff in. And so it's like, oh, we're going to add in two suspects because like apparently every person that came from Eamon's Field has to be a suspect to be the Dragon Reborn. It's like the showrunners did that because they knew that if they were going to try and focus on Perrin, because Perrin is apart from Matt and Rand, and I think that they're being handled pretty well, you know, they would have to focus more on nuance and subtlety and they don't have that bone in their body. That's why when they're like, oh, let's show Nynaeve's power, it's like dash of subtlety. Nope, like the lid falls off and the entire jar of subtlety just spills out onto it and no longer is it subtle. It's, it's oh, we have to have these five characters that are, you know, possibly the Dragon Reborn. Two of them we're just going to sort of shelf for two and a half episodes. And then, you know, the one that we're really trying to develop will show their massive power in this ridiculous way that's definitely not in the books, which... You know, it's kind of annoying. I do enjoy a good action scene here and there, and I enjoyed seeing Nina Eve's first channeling reveal her power in this way. But like you said, like, it shouldn't be wrapped in this mystery of, is she the Dragon Reborn? And Loghain's literal words after he sees this somehow, even though he shouldn't be able to, is, you know, the Raging Sun, as if he now believes she's the Dragon Reborn. Right. And I'm just like, why are we going back to this? Like, you already scratched her off the fucking list. Like, uh, why are you making this so convoluted? It, it just really, really bothered me. The only thing I was going to actually add to that was the fact that, don't forget, the uninitiated does not know that she was a channeler until this very moment. And not only was she not a channeler until this moment, she wasn't as powerful of a channeler as she is. So I think the whole, you know, yes, we had Moraine disqualify her as aged out of being the Dragon Reborn. This is to put her back in there. And who knows? This show may take a massive turn, but we will see. But it's also like correcting a mistake they made, which is that female channelers can sense the ability in other people, which is why she could sense it in Egwene. But for some reason, she couldn't sense it in Nina Eve in the film or in the TV iteration. And it's so dumb because like if you could sense it in Egwene, 
and you could just be like, oh yeah, let me walk you through it really fast. You definitely could have sensed it in, in Night of Eve, but like, it's a reveal just for the audience that's been uninitiated because they haven't been properly informed or shown what they should know. It, it just falls flat for me in this moment where it's like, if you want to show that she is truly powerful and she's intimidating as fuck, absolutely. Because, you know, I don't want to get spoiler heavy or anything like that, but, you know, Nina Eve's power is very much regarded as something that is unsubstantiated in the past. You know, she is incredibly fucking powerful and that's like impressive in its own right, whether or not she is the Dragon Reborn, but it's like kind of takes away from that fact for us because we've read the books, we've read the source material. And that's what we're saying, like, ooh, they could have a deviation from the books. And that's maybe why they added that line in. Because it's almost like if they don't change who the Dragon Reborn is, it's like, what the fuck was the point? Aside from to do two more red herrings in a show that's already so rich with red herrings. Mm, I, yeah, it could be. I think, honestly, if it was it was only going to be a man, then between the three of them that we have right now, it's, it's going to be obvious as to which, well, it would be obvious who it definitely wasn't. But uh, yeah, you know, that's, that's either here nor there now. 